going to read the do our reading today. It's from 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what people or time the spirit of Christ in them is indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay, riddle me this. We're going to begin with a riddle. Uh, what is the same every day, but different every morning and evening? Someone want to try? Just holler out the answer. The sun. Right? I gave you a big clue. <laughs> um, uh, the sun, because it's the same sun rising and setting every day. But every morning, every evening, it's a new beauty, is it not? Just the brilliant colors against the canvas of the clouds. Or even when it's overcast, the sun is still there. Uh, men. Pay attention. If you ever want to pay a, a good compliment to the lady in your life, let her know that she's like the sun. She's like the sunrise and sunset. You're endearingly the same you every day, but also a new and beautiful you each and every day. Just try that. Just try that. I'm trying to help you guys here. Okay. Um, but the principle being, it's the same sun that's rising every day, but its beauty never ends. Today, in a similar spirit, I hope you'll see the gospel like that. Uh, I hope you'll be convinced that I want to know and experience Jesus and his gospel, his grace, like the sun. It's the same. It doesn't change. But every day, there's a new beauty to it. And so as we work through today's passage, I hope that something that will stir in your heart is a prayer like this. Lord, let me never become too familiar with your glorious gospel. The Christ follower filled with his spirit and being sanctified and going deeper and deeper into grace. It, it, to the day we we're called home, there, there should be just a never-ending curiosity and never-ending freshness to God in our lives, to our relationship with him. Because the gospel, it truly is infinitely glorious. And so let me never become too familiar. And so on that note, just straight off the bat, is your Christianity feeling a little routine today? If it is, please, I hope you'll pay attention and that what Peter has to say today will speak to you. And so I want to ask, um, as a big picture question for the rest of our time together in the passage, what is the wonder of the gospel? What is the wonder of the gospel? And so we need to see the gospel like the rising of the sun and, and going down to the same. And what I mean by that, it's the same sun that rises and sets each day, but its unmatchable beauty is never the same. Uh, the sun always outdoes its own beauty each dawn and dusk. It's the same sun, but with a continual dance of unpredictable and bursting colors and hues cast against 
the ever-morphing and glorious canvas of clouds. And the gospel is supposed to be even more like that in our lives. So what is the wonder of the gospel? I hope you'll see with me that the Christian faith always been about grace. And that the Christian faith has always been spirit-dependent. And that the Christian faith will always be gloriously polarizing. Okay? And what I mean by that, we'll get to it. So first, the Christian faith has always been about grace. Now, um, just to get on the same page, what is God's grace? And I just did a quick survey of um, Scripture this week in preparation for the sermon. And if I had to boil it down, I think the sort of bottom line definition is that God's grace is His undeserved, kind help. And I, I put the qualifier there, kind that it's all about God's kindness, because certainly there's mean help in this world as well, right? I mean, I'm sure I've been there. I'm sure you've been there. Final help and with the sense of superiority, um, resentment sometimes and, and whatnot. But God's grace is his undeserved kind help. His kind help. Now, this is really important. I really want you to get this. So I'm going to overdo it with some scripture references, okay? Going back to Genesis, uh, the fall has happened. Adam and Eve have been banished. God has made it clear that part of the curse is uh, difficulty in um, giving birth now. And so chapter 4, verse 1, after the fall, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In fact, there are around 140 references through Scripture speaking to God's help. And so I want you to really try to understand God's grace as his undeserved kind help. So we see some grace here. Um, jumping to Exodus 2, chapter 23, and we're not going to go through all 140 references, but still I'm going to overdo it because I just really want you to be convinced. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And so here is a picture of grace. We can deduce that they wanted help from God and God heard his grace here. His deliverance is help. Jumping to Judges chapter four, verse three, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. You seeing a theme here that really one characteristic of the people of God in relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit is meant to be one of needing and wanting God's help. That's his grace. Jumping to Psalm, and the Psalms are, are just replete beautifully with lots of cries for God's help. And so here a blessing in Psalm 20, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Again, this is a picture of God's grace. I want you to understand God's grace as his kind help. Psalm 27, 9, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help. And so the psalmist here is looking back on the past and he's experienced God as help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. And I want you to notice he's already starting to connect God's help with the act of being saved. Matthew 15, let's jump to the Gospels. And here, the Canaanite woman pleading to Jesus 
for her child, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And so this is one of the most purest, most crystal clear postures that a Christ follower should have toward God. It's one of wanting, needing help. And so we even see it here in a person um, relating to Jesus. Lord, help me. So let's just pause there. Is, is that an, a frequent heart cry of yours? Is that what bubbles up from your spirit as you go about life? Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Again, uh, the Gentile with, the, with, with Jesus, speaking to Jesus, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, again, here, even in faith, in believing and following Jesus, we need help. And our belief to continue to mature and grow and become bolstered and, and rooted and anchored and strong. We need help. We need God's grace. John chapter 6, this is Jesus himself explaining, it is the Spirit who gives life. Flesh is no help at all. And so meaning if you're trying to live life in your own strength and effort, what Jesus definitively is saying is that's not any helpful help. If you want to live rightly before God, you need the spirit who is the true source of help and life. Uh, Acts chapter 26, this is Paul near the end of his life. He's had his life and intense decades of ministry to really distill and boil down what his faith in Jesus is all about. And he's standing before King Agrippa and almost a final testimony of sorts. And he says to King Agrippa, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. You see it? What's God's grace? It's his kind help, his undeserved kind help. And Paul was boasting in Christ. What he was proud to say is, anything that I've been able to do, it's because of the help that not, doesn't come from seminars and education and my status and my credentials. No, the help that comes from God. And so he stands there testifying to both small and great about the prophets, Moses, and Jesus Christ and his suffering and his resurrection. This is um, really insightful here. Second Corinthians chapter one, again, Paul and teaching the church how to do faith life together. You also must help us by prayer. And so truly let this never become a cliche that prayer is actually the best way. One of the best ways we can help each other. If we're looking for the help that comes from God. And Paul exhorts the church to help one another, to help him in his ministry by prayer. Of course, we do need to also help materially and practically, concretely. But prayer, in that sense, is one of the most concrete things we can do to experience God's help through one another. And he re reiterates a similar thing. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. One more. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. There's God's kindness, his undeserved kindness, 
and find grace. And so there's where I feel confident to offer to you the definition of God's grace as his undeserved kind help. It's all brought together here in Hebrews 4. Receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so as we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace. And so Peter wants these Christ followers who are supposed to have the mindset of being in exile. And on just a quick side point, Peter here, one meaning of being in exile as a Christ follower while living on this earth is to understand that you're part of a, the, the grandest story, God's gospel story being played out and written in history. And that's what he's getting to when he says there are these prophets, even from thousands of years before, who are trying to tap into and understand this grand history and story of God that he's writing. And so now Peter gets specific that the part of the story that you're to understand is grace. And the salvation that is by God's grace. Now, something that's helpful to understand what theologians have, it's a helpful term. um, And these ideas really, I think, are there in Scripture. And theologians, they distinguish between common grace versus saving grace. Peter here, for certain, is speaking to God's specific saving grace. We'll unpack what that means in a second. But God's grace, if it's the, the bottom line definition is his undeserved kind help, God is so good that he extends that undeserved kind help to even unbelievers. And that's what we mean by his common grace. Okay? God's saving grace is a very specific grace that has a specific effect. But it's good to think about this common grace because I want you to see God's help. And especially if you're a friend here today who hasn't placed faith in Jesus yet, I, I want you to see that God has been good to you. And that that would be a stepping stone for you to want even more of his goodness. And so Jesus himself, I think his way of um, talking about common grace is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And here it is. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. God shows his undeserved kindness to make this earth continue to rotate on its perfect axis so that we don't, you know, melt away or freeze up and and around the sun. And and God keeps everything in order. He really, if you just pause to think about it, every goodness and blessing in your life, it it didn't depend on you. It ultimately, if you work backwards humbly enough, you'll realize that everything has been given as a gift to you. And so he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so you might include in this common grace just the sense of God's help when we call out to him for things big or small. Lord, help me find my keys again. (laughs) Right? That's a common prayer in my life. And for, I don't know, if it's coincidence, I really think it's God. When I actually remember to pray that, then I find them more quickly. Lord, help me to be patient. Lord, help me to forgive. Lord, help me, uh, my loved one, to feel better. Lord, help me find a job. 
Lord, and, and on and on and on. These big and small requests, really, maybe we could include all this in just God's common grace. But today, and that's just to, 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 we talked about that because I want you to understand and contrast that and to realize that much more, how much beautiful God's saving grace is because just with God's help in life on this earth, it's not enough. Who, at the end of the day, I'm just going to speak just matter-of-factly, who cares if you have a wonderful life on this earth, but you have the worst eternal life because you weren't saved. And so Peter, he wants exiles, Christian exiles, to stay so deeply comforted and anchored in God's saving grace. This salvation is about God's grace. And so next and most importantly, there is God's saving grace. Um, now first, as I've already pointed out, but just to make sure you don't miss it, notice that Peter equates salvation to God's grace. Now, just as our culture searches so diligently for, say, the cure to cancer, Peter is speaking to people through thousands of years who are diligently searching for another cure. And it's the cure to spiritual cancer, to the sin that separates us from God and damns us to eternal condemnation. And so Peter, he is reiterating, he's repeating, he's re-emphasizing. Let's make this clear. It's only by grace that you can be saved, that you can be forgiven. And Peter here, he's on side with Paul and the rest of Scripture, Old and New Testament. Paul, just to uh, elaborate more, and maybe this will help make it even more lucid, Paul says in Ephesians 2, and this is one of the most succinct, beautiful um, summaries of how God saves us by grace, for by grace, and just fill in there, by God's undeserved kind help, meaning you couldn't have done it on your own. And God stepped in, and by his undeserved kind help, you have been saved, and our part is through faith, just to believe it. And this, not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of your own effort, so that no one may boast. So let's pause and, and just pastoral application question. Do you have the, the, the countercultural perspective of Psalm 124? Meaning, I said that this message of grace is consistent throughout the whole Bible. Psalm 124 says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Is that your attitude? For sure. Christians, even more than anyone else, we're meant to show a great effort. We're meant to show uh, and develop a great competence and, and passion for life. But the starting place is radically different. It starts from a place, Lord, I want to respond to you. I need you to be on my side. And in fact, if we really get it, then it's that I'm on the Lord's side. And I need your grace. And I want to work so hard and do my best because of your great, undeserved, kind help and love to me. 
Now, our culture, it's important to pause on this and ask yourself if you have this perspective, because our culture cries out, I did it my way, right? There are even songs that are celebrated. I did it my way. We want to be independent. We want autonomy. We want our rights. We want our individual just boundary that it's me. We want our credit. We want our rewards. So just by mere fact of living in a city like Toronto, you have to every day intentionally guard against this attitude that the culture would try to feed you, that it's you, you got to do. It's your story. It's you, your effort. So do you have this countercultural perspective? And Paul is, or Peter is speaking to that too, this great salvation that the prophets were looking for, searching for even more than a cure for cancer over thousands of years, that they're longing for grace, that our help is in the name of the Lord. It's the hardest thing for our current culture to surrender our rights. It is the hardest thing for our current culture to relinquish one's hard-earned merit. And so the gospel, I, I get it, especially if you're a friend who's still trying to consider Jesus. It, it's, on one hand, if you look at it a certain way, it, Christianity is a hard message to accept. Because do you realize how much humility it takes to be able to say 100% sincerely, I couldn't have done it without God's help. We want to be able to say, I did it. All my hard work is ultimately moot. It's hard to say that. It takes us a profound humility to say all my hard work at the end of the day is ultimately moot. All my accomplishments ultimately are worthless than dog leap. Now I say that because Paul effectively was saying that in Philippians. So grace, if you, if you want to really try to get the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of grace, it, it, it runs diametrically opposite to our core. Now, in part, it's because we were wired from creation to work for our eternal life, and that hasn't changed. But Adam and Eve broke that system. And where God created us for perfect good works from the beginning, and for that to translate to a good life, that system broke because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And that still runs true today. And so, what's the wonder of the gospel? First, that it's always been about grace. Next, the Christian faith has always been spirit-revealed. If it's truly about grace, meaning something, an undeserved kind help of God from the outside, then this is just another way to say that's why the Christian faith has always been spirit-revealed. We can't come to the conclusion on our own. We can't discover this on our own. We need the Spirit to open up our eyes from the outside and reveal it. And that's why Paul or Peter excuse me, explains, inquiring these prophets, inquiring what person or time 
the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted. Now, this is a beautiful, uh, encouraging, profound theological statement here. What person or time, so the prophets are looking, they understand that God's grace is going to be embodied in a human being. His salvation is going to come in the form of a Messiah, a human being. But what I really want you to notice here is Peter doesn't just say the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of Christ. And how I appreciate that, and I offer it to you to appreciate it the same way, this is how much our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity God, wants you to believe that it's not just the Holy Spirit, but it's Christ and His Spirit, and they're on side together. That their collective goal, that the Trinity God, the three in one, is wanting you to understand. And therefore, revealing, inspiring, leading these prophets of old along to predict this man Jesus. And indicating when uh, the, the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Now, part of what's important, if, if the Spirit has revealed it to you, what you get, notice the word subsequent. So the sufferings of Christ was in the past, and now we're living in the present. And here he says subsequent, meaning what's still to come. And so if you believe in eternity, that's an important first step. That shows that the Spirit is revealing something to you. you. You believe that there's life beyond this life. Even if you're just about general spirituality, if your friend's still investigating, but you believe there's a life after this life, I want to trust that that's the Holy Spirit trying to get you to think even more about the true definition of life after this life. And that true definition is in the gospel and how Jesus defines it, how the Bible defines it but there's something to come subsequent. And so verse 12, we see the word itself. It was revealed. That's where we get it. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And so God, through history, preparing all this, setting this all up, having the scriptures last and survive through history that we still have it today. This is God's deep, Undeserved kindness, his kind help, another expression of his grace. So let me try to put it into uh, more present day cultural context. Okay, I don't mean any disrespect uh, by this photo, this photoshopping, um, but you can hopefully notice there Elon Musk at the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, now I just bring him up because just from a human standpoint, what a man! <laughs> What, what a powerful human being that just by his sheer will, I'm going to take over Twitter. I'm going to buy out Twitter because I, I want to. And of course, he has whatever other agendas. And then he does it. Yeah, there were little bumps in the road and whatnot, but he, he finishes it off this week. Now, from a worldly standpoint, how many people can just decide to buy and take over Twitter on a whim? And now probably he has some agenda to influence free speech in the manner that he wants to and so forth and really influence a global culture. 
So Elon Musk, and in part, I say this with the deepest respect, he is the epitome of a man of works. He has worked hard. He has been trying to actualize all his potential, his intelligence, his, his business savvy and so forth. He epitomizes performance and human works. And someone who's trying to literally reach for the stars with his SpaceX company. And then you have Jesus who epitomizes God's grace. Here is someone who's even a headline I read now richer than royalty. Right, richer than the kings and queens of the earth. But Jesus, I think both symbolically and literally, you could say, was at the lowest point, lowest status, lowest condition that a human being could ever reach because he took upon all the gross sin of the world and receiving the full wrath of God Jesus on the cross, I do believe that he was the lowest of all lowest human beings in history because of what he was taking on. He had no portfolio to boast. Even whatever investments he had apparently made during his ministry and life on earth were lost in the short term. So here's the point. Here's the sort of cultural exercise. Even for the Christian today, try to maybe put aside everything you've been brought up with and, and, and just kind of in your honest, you know, this, this is not a wise thing for a pastor to do, but just try to think in a fleshly way, right? Just for a, just kind of in a, put on a ridiculous mindset. And to non-Christians out there, our friends who are here, um, you have two people to follow, either Elon or Jesus. Who would you naturally gravitate toward? You see, the, the, I'm trying to help you understand the point of Christianity has always been about the spirit revealing. Because just in our flesh, in our senses and just in the here and now and what's concrete and just looking out on what we can, you know, tangibly make sense of the world, it's more natural to just to esteem a, a man like Elon Musk. But to really get Jesus's message, for you to relinquish 100% of all your greatness, that's counterintuitive. That, that needs to be spirit revealed. That kind of humility to confess that. And so we can speak of just the senses versus the soul. To live just the regular human life, it's generally by the senses. But at least, you know, and, and thankfully there is an increased awareness of spirituality in our time, in our culture, but it needs to go further. As we're more soulful, we, we really need to search out truth. What is the truth? And so Jesus is offering that truth. It's about outward circumstances versus our inner life. So where do you fall on that sort of spectrum? Are, are you just always affected and 
your emotions and mood is dependent on your outward circumstances versus really trying to, to steady the ship first from an inner place. And even though a circumstance might trigger something, you're pausing. Say, okay, spirit, how do I exhibit the character of Christ? And so you reflect inwardly. It's about just speculating, coming up with your own ideas of who God is, wondering what He might be like versus, no, I trust that Scripture, I receive it by faith, that this is God's revealed Word. It's about wanting to live mostly for the here and now versus faith and eternity and subsequent glories. It's about life on this earth only versus, okay, no, there are consequences in eternity. And there is eternal life. And so this is why I mean that the Christian faith, and I hope you'll see this with me, that the Christian faith has always, well, has always been, excuse the typo there, gloriously polarized. And so even Jesus himself said at one point, I've come to bring a sword. And who I am and my message, it's, it's going to separate those who believe and those who don't. But this is part of the wonder of the gospel. And, and we always need to, for the rest of our lives, as Christ followers in exile, just stay, to, to keep deliberately making that conscientious choice every day and staying on side. And so um, where I see this, Peter explains and these things that were prophesied, the Spirit revealed them in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news. And so announce here is also the word for preach. So it's really kind of a synonym. What, what has been preached to you through the preaching of the good news or what has been, and they're synonyms because preaching is really about announcing. Real preachers, what they're supposed to be doing if at some point, the person who's up here, if myself, I haven't announced, just simply stated by fact what Jesus has done, then I haven't preached. Okay? And so this announcement has been made, and where the history of the word, the background of the word comes from is, uh, it was used especially uh, for a herald, when, especially in the context when a king has taken over another nation, and then he sends a messenger to announce the king's edicts, or that, you know, just what the rule of the law, the land will be now. Now the citizen has the choice whether to, like how to respond to that. So it's just something that's being stated, announced, and this is what we mean by polarizing. You need to make a decision. So these things have been announced to you, through the preaching of the good news, again, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's revealed these things. And this really mysterious phrase, things into which angels long to look. The best explanation I've heard of that phrase, things even which angels long to look, is this. Angels, different from human beings, they can't be saved. They won't be saved. Jesus didn't die on the cross for animals. Uh, for your lovely pet that passed away, sorry, or angels. 
only for human beings. But we know with angels, there was a faction that rebelled and fell away. And this is a little bit of imagination, but perhaps it's even angels wondering, maybe whether they're fallen angels, I want to be saved. I want to come back into the courts of the Almighty. But they can't. And wondering, what is it about human beings that God is willing to sacrifice his own son for them? Or perhaps angels that never rebelled. Still, because you do in reading of instances of angels in scripture, they, they exhibit some emotions and compassion and care. So perhaps even non-fallen angels wondering, can my angel brothers be saved now that that's all i'm saying very clearly a disclaimer that's imagination but getting to the point the angels don't have a handle on this either this is how glorious mysterious profound the gospel is and if we're losing the wonder of grace something's off and we got to figure out what's going on And so what's helpful, I've heard and said that we need to distinguish the gospel as good news from good advice. Even Christians can fall into the trap of looking to Jesus and Christianity just for good advice on life. Uh, just a sort of a Christian version of a tech, TED Talk. Christian version of a self-help um, column. And so just having good IQ for making life work here and now. And, and what it really feeds into is therefore your effort. And so good advice is about things that are to come. It's counsel for situations that you're going to face. Well, headlines say a recession's coming. So what's good financial advice? To be able to do, you know, just to prepare yourself and make, navigate the best for something that's to come. And so it's all about your work and your effort. But good news, as Martin Lloyd-Jones explains, in fact, he's the one that kind of coins this whole advice versus good news. Good news is about something that has already happened. Again, it's the herald. It's the messenger that has just come and announced. It's happened. It's done. Your nation is now this king's, and how will you respond as a new citizen? So, for example, and I want to appeal especially to friends who are still investigating Jesus. Here's kind of an illustration to make you think. What if on March 11th, 2020, when the World Health Organization announced that COVID is a pandemic, what if instead the head of uh, WHO, it was broadcast all over the news, instead what the words that came out of his mouth were, there is a viral pandemic but it is spiritual. It is sin. We must find the vaccine for sin. Now think back to the past two and a half or so years and how the world just pivoted and put effort to respond and figure out, okay, what do we do in light of this? If only the world would think of their eternity and their souls that way too. But this is why the church, therefore, as well, and Christian, 
we can't stop and try to learn and figure out how to announce this good news, to make it a part of your conversation with your friends, family, strangers. On a quick side note then, that's a quick plug for, if you can, make it out to Tactics uh, this Saturday. It'll be a seminar to practically try to help you engage those conversations. And so the gospel will polarize. You will believe or you will not. So let me unpack this and, and more as pastoral application, especially for the Christian here today. Because we want to know the gospel as good news and therefore to live our lives in response to it. Not just as good advice to try to make our life better, betraying the fact that we just think life is about this life in our heart of hearts. So good advice attitude is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And I appreciate the book Gospel and Life uh, that spells these things out. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Versus good news attitude, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's announced, you're accepted, you're loved by the Father in Christ. Therefore, I want to overflow all this obedience. Good advice attitude would be, I obey in order to get things from God. Because you think he can be manipulated. Good news attitude, I obey to get God himself. Because I cherish the relationship. I delight in him and I want to resemble him. A good advice attitude would be that your your motivation is fear and insecurity. Am I going to lose my salvation because I don't do this and this and this? But the good news attitude, if the gospel is really taking over you in wonder, your motivation is just grateful joy. Good advice attitude, when circumstances go south, I'm angry at God or myself because I believe good people deserve a comfortable life. You're trying to get something from God, manipulate them. Good news attitude, when circumstances go south, I struggle indeed, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus. This trial is for my good by my Father. It's not a punishment to sanctify you, make you more like Christ. Good advice attitude, when I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. You become defensive. But if the gospel, you're living in the wonder of grace, when I'm criticized, I struggle, but my identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Good advice attitude, my identity and my self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. I look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. A good news attitude, my attitude and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on people different from me with different beliefs and whatnot. Now, let me wrap it up with this diagram, okay? These lines, if it represents time and to eternity. Here's a picture of a healthy and real understanding of grace, okay? As time goes along, there comes your point of believing in Jesus, your conversion. And then, uh, as time goes along, 
hopefully, as a Christian, you become more aware of your own sin. But hopefully, and as you're aware of your own sin, uh, you become aware of your need for the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, at the top, what, what should also grow is an awareness of the holiness of God, of just who God is, how great He is. And so, as your awareness of your sin grows, and as the awareness of God grows, then the cross and the empty tomb, what Jesus has done, He becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and more beautiful in your life. What an unhealthy understanding of grace looks like is that, yes, your awareness of sin grows, your sense of God grows, but the cross and the empty tomb, what Jesus has done, basically stays the same, but really what's happening then, effectively, it's becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And so, incidentally, you just start to actually more rely on yourself. Now, what an unbelieving understanding of grace looks like then is that First, you just have a growing awareness of your own pride about me. And, and really, your awareness of God in this diagram just means it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And so it's just about me, 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 me. I hope that you have a never-ending growth in just seeing how beautiful Jesus is, how wonderful his gospel is. And so let me pray this for us as we end. Lord, help us to never become too familiar with your glorious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.